Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Nicola, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series and discussing soft tissue infections. Nick, do you want to start us off by talking about some hand infections? Sure, let's dive right in. So a paronychia is an infection beneath the epinychial fold. This begins dorsal to the nail and may spread superficially around the nail. The most common pathogen here is Staph aureus. Um, This is going to be a theme that we see in our hand infections. Uh, The treatment initially may involve just warm soaks. If the abscess has developed, this will require drainage um, with epinychial fold separated from the nail. And if abscess is under the nail, you must remove it. Uh, Acute infection is typically bacterial, like we mentioned, and this can be managed as far as uh, medical management. After drainage, patients should be given a prescription for augmentin. And if patients present with a chronic paronychia, this is more commonly fungal, and this can be treated with topical uh, meconazole or tibinafine, as well as uh, PO ketoconazole or fluconazole. And if treatment with these uh, medical managements for chronic paronychia fails, we then think about surgical options uh, for marsupialization. The next finger infection is a felon, um, and this presents with a red, swollen, fluctuant fingertip. Again, most common pathogen is Staph aureus. Treatment here is going to be uh, incision and drainage. You will open longitudinally along the point of maximum fluctuance, or if you use a lateral incision over the mid-axial line. So w- when you're uh, planning out your incision for felon drainage, you want to incise on the ulnar side of the digit for your index, middle, and ring finger, and the radial side of the digit for the small and thumb. And this is to decrease pain with uh, opposition and uh, pinching later on. Um, you also would address this with debridement, soaks, and antibiotics. A collar button abscess is an infection of the interdigital web space, and this will present with an abducted digit and pain and swelling uh, and erythema within the web space. For these, we treat with incision and drainage using longitudinal, volar, and dorsal incisions, but it's important to not incise all the way through the web space um, to avoid uh, both web space contracture and the motor branch of the median nerve to the thenar muscles. Next, we have flexor tenosynovitis, and we think about our canable signs, which is sausage digit swelling, tenderness along the flexor sheath, uh, finger held in flexion at rest, and pain on passive extension, which is going to be our most sensitive indicator. One uh, of our uh, ED's favorite consoles, oh yeah. I feel like. Every console is flexor tino. Flexor tino, sausage digit. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as addressing flexor tino, the, uh, the answer here is going to be operative irrigation and drainage of the flexor sheath. And this can be done with a single incision, to, like a Brunner incision up the finger, kind of open everything up and drain that way. Or you can do a double incision with an angiopath flow through. And you have to remember, you may have to explore Perona space because a horseshoe shaped connection uh, between the small and thumb sheaths, sheaths can cause an abscess to form in this area. Uh, the most common bacteria, as in our other finger infections, is Staph aureus, but we may have others that are frequently tested and less frequently encountered. Um, if we have flexor tenosynovitis with minimal symptoms and in someone with marine exposure, we think about Mycobacterium marinum. The treatment here would be clarithromycin. In contrast to this would be flexor tino with severe systemic symptoms, swelling and hemorrhagic bullae. And here we think about Vibrio vulnificus, and this is a gram-negative bacillus. And for these, we treat with ceftriaxone and uh, levaquin. Moving on to some deep space infections, we think about our, our different deep spaces of the hand, starting with the thenar space. 
the borders are, are uh, dorsally the fascia of the adductor pollicis, volarly the index flexor tendon, ulnarly the mid palmar septum of the third metacarpal, and radially the adductor pollicis insertion. You'll see abduction of the thumb when you have an infection of this space. Pain will be exacerbated by passive adduction and opposition. And severe infections can extend to the first web space and even to the dorsal radial hand. And this would be termed a dumbbell or a pantaloon infection. Infections of the mid palmar space may, may also occur. And something you may see either in a question stem or in the ED is loss of palmar concavity. The boundaries of this space, volar margin is going to be the flexor tendons of the long through small fingers. The deep margin is going to be the metacarpals and the interosseous. Uh, muscles. The radial border is going to be the septum of the long finger metacarpal, and the ulnar border is going to be the hyposthenar muscles. And you may uh, also have some dorsal hand swelling for these patients, so don't let that fool you. You may still have a mid palmar space infection. And the hypothenar space is less commonly infected, uh, but the radial border here is the uh, hypothenar septum. And in order to drain this space, you would have an incision over the hyperthenar muscles. And finally, peronus space. Um, the boundaries are the, uh, the palmaris quadratus, the digital flexors, the FPL radially, and the vertical band of the fascia radial to the FCU. And importantly, like I mentioned before, this, be, this is contiguous with the radial and ulnar bursa. This is why we can develop horseshoe abscesses with in, uh, spread of the infection from either the radial or, or the ulnar bursa. Uh, herpetic Whitlow is HSV infection of the digits, and this may be seen in dentists or oral hygienists. Uh, treatment for these patients is typically going to be observed. Um, if the patients present within one to three days of symptoms, you can treat with acyclovir or valacyclovir. Um, but typically, when we're being observed in these patients, unless they are immunocompromised, then we want to think about treatment um, with acyclovir. It's important to clean these wounds, um, BID to avoid bacterial superinfection. You do not want to unroof these lesions that, that can lead to significant spread. Uh, and another infection that we think about is septic arthritis. So this is infection of the joint space that can lead to permanent damage caused by bacterial toxin destruction of cartilage. Increased pressure um, can also lead to uh, loss of perfusion to the joint. Diagnosing these patients, we think about pain that is significantly increased by joint, even micro joint motion. Um, patients will have almost complete loss of motion and will not let you range them at all. You must aspirate the joint to confirm infection. And we were looking for a white count greater than 50 glucose of 40 or less than fasting blood uh, glucose. And you're looking for bacteria on gram stain. Most common bacteria is staph aureus, but you may also see uh, gonorrhea or uh, haemophilus influenza in kids. Treatment is going to be surgically decompressed urgently, as well as antibiotics. The antibiotics of choice are going to be first-generation cephalosporins or clindamycin. Um, and if you have a gonorrhea infection, you want to treat with IV ceftriaxone. Hannah, you want to talk about some uh, bites that we see in the ED? Yes, very common. So we'll go through a few associations. So for cat or dog bites, you think of pastorella infection. If there's any association with freshwater fish, think flavobacterium. Uh, we don't see this much in North Carolina, but if you have a bear or a ferret bite, think mycobacterium. Shark bites are associated with vibrio, and then a fight bite, a human bite is inconella. So cat bites more often become infected and cause abscesses since they have teeth that penetrate instead of 
open up the skin. And for that reason, we typically perform a, oftentimes a bedside IND for cat bites. And then cat scratch fever is caused by Bartonella. And you'll see axillary node swelling and a bump at the site of the bite or the scratch. The treatment is inside supportive therapy and just time. This can take up to four months to fully heal. So for a human bite, a fight bite, most common bacteria is strep viridans followed by staph, bacteroides, and then inconella. However, inconella is the one that we're often tested on. And the treatment is augmentin versus Bactrim and Clinda if there's a penicillin allergy. So toxic shock syndrome, this can be seen in rhinoplasty patients or in patients who have packings after a nasal bone reduction who have prolonged nasal packing. Uh, patients often have a fever greater than 102, have multi-system organ failure, have rash, erythema, that extends away from the surgical site. And this is caused by toxins produced by staph, which is exotoxin 1, or strep bacteria, uh, which is associated with enterotoxin A, B, or C. Clindamycin inactivates the toxin, and then you'll also give broad-spectrum coverage for bacteria. Steven Johnson syndrome, or toxic epidermal necrolysis, this is T-cell-mediated hypersensitivity to a drug, often antibiotics, anticonvulsants, or NSAIDs. And patients present with fever, painful, vesicular bolus, rash, mucosal involvement. And then this can progress to full thickness necrosis and multi-system organ dysfunction. And this often requires supportive treatment in a burn center. I'm actually uh, just finishing up my burn rotation and we did see a uh, TEN patient and it is uh, extremely impressive and makes you think about uh, these antibiotics we prescribed that can put patients at risk for this. So we really got to make sure we're treating uh, patients that are indicated. Crazy. Jeez. Another scary one is mucormycosis, and this is a non-purulent necrotizing fungal infection and is seen most commonly in diabetics. And on on gram stain, we'll show right angle non-septate branching hyphae. And this requires very aggressive debridement and strong antifungals. And then finally, we have necrotizing fasciitis, and this is a rapidly progressing soft tissue infection that progresses along fascial planes. And it's often a polymicrobial infection that includes strep, uh, E. coli, proteus, serratus, and staph aureus. And can be due to excessive toxin production of strep. Uh, patients will often present with erythema. Erythema bullae will be very sick. And then a keyword is clear gray dishwater fluid and crepitus. And the worst prognostic factor is delay in surgical intervention. So really, if there is high clinical suspicion for neck fasc, you should take the patient immediately to the operating room. And some other pathologies that are in this section uh, include hydradenitis. And this originates from the apocrine glands and is staged with the Hurley scale. So stage one, there is separate abscesses which drain on their own. In stage two, there are multiple abscesses which scar and require drainage. And then stage three, there's multiple scarring and tracking connected abscesses. For stage one, in which there's early disease and solitary or uncomplicated abscesses, these are treated with excision and steroid injections. 
for widespread disease, often antibiotics are tried initially. Uh, the patient is educated about hygiene and weight loss. However, these are often recurrent and debilitating, and patients often will progress to needing wide excisions and closures versus skin grafting versus healing by secondary intention. And this is commonly the answer on our in-service. Uh, these can be quite bloody procedures, um, but often best to leave open. Next is pyoderma gangrenosum. And with this disease, you have skin ulceration and breakdown, which looks infectious. However, it keeps getting worse when you treat it. And this is mediated by neutrophils, and it's often seen with inflammatory bowel disease or inflammatory arthritis. The diagnosis is made via biopsy, and the treatment is really to treat the underlying disease and then to treat with steroids. Follicular pyodermas are infection of hair follicles, and this includes folliculitis, furnacles, and carbuncles. And the treatment is local IND versus antibiotics and improved hygiene. So a few miscellaneous topics. Uh, perioperative antibiotics are indicated in surgeries that are greater than two hours, in any clean breast surgery, and then in contaminated surgery of the hand or face. And then for Gastillo type three injuries, the antibiotic of choice is cephalosporin. For perioperative antibiotics, you give one gram of ANCEF, the patient is less than 80 kilograms, and then two grams of ANCEF, typically if the patient is greater than 80 kilograms, this should be given about 40 minutes prior to incision. And then if vancomycin is chosen, the appropriate dose is one to 1.5 grams IV. For patients that have a penicillin or cephalosporin allergy, an alternative is to give six, 900 milligrams of IV clindamycin. So what do you do in the OR if you drop something, a flap, bone, so if you drop a bone, the best thing to do is decontaminate with betadine irrigation and then saline rinse with a triple antibiotic solution. So the answer is if you drop it and it comes into contact with something that's non-sterile, um, treat it appropriately, but you don't need to throw it away. Uh, anything other than bone, you also decontaminate thoroughly with chlorhexidine. The wound is now considered class three contaminated. And just to review, class one is clean and the operative incision is made at the time of surgery. In class two, this is clean contaminated. The operative incision is made at the time of surgery, but also involves the respiratory GI or GU tracts. Class three is contaminated. There is a breach in sterile technique or there's traumatic wound with outside contamination. Class four is an infected wound. Uh, an example is an old surgical wound with evidence of existing infection or an old traumatic wound with existing infection. Then finally, a few buzzwords and miscellaneous topics. So don't forget about a, a tetanus shot for many of these injuries. And then for antibiotics, tetracyclines are not indicated for children less than eight and quinolones are not indicated or contraindicated for patients that are less than 18. If a patient clearly has a skin infection from a water source, but no systemic illness, think mycobacterium. For leeches, the association is aeromonas, and the prophylaxis is, ciprofloc is ciprofloxacin, tetracyclines, Bactrim, or third-generation cephalosporins. For C. diff, you give flagell for mild or moderate symptoms, and then P. vancomycin, or 
fedoxamin, fedox, or fedoxamycin for severe symptoms. For cervical necrotizing fasciitis, this originates from pharyngitis. If a patient has diabetes with a nasty necrotizing non-perial infection, think mucormycosis. And if it sounds like neck fasci, it probably is neck fasci. And service, I don't think, is trying to trick you on this one. In, in immunosuppressed patients, have a high suspicion for TB. And some of the buzzwords here are rice bodies, zeal Nielsen stain, Lowenson Jensen medium. This is really going back to some step one knowledge here. Uh, for dental hygienists, think herpetic Whitlow. For nail biting, dishwashing, patients are prone to paronychia. Uh, X-ray and MRI is most sensitive for fluid collection. And look for gas. This can be a clue for gas in green or necrotizing fasciitis. And then you may see a periosteal reaction that's indicative of osteomyelitis. For MRSA decolonization, the only thing proven to decolonize is mupiracin ointment and chlorhexidine body washes for five days. So a lot of information, um, but I think high yield and just remembering some of those buzzwords will get you a few questions on the in-service. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.